Welcome to the Out of Man podcast. Ah, hello, Rory. You're How right. are you? Uh, all right. Actually, it, as you are Scottish, I think you have to say, uh, when I lived up there, my friends called me Sam Brun. Sam Brun. <laughs> I never thought of that. Yes. <laughs> that, would, that would have been a better start. Well, okay then. Sam Brun, welcome to the Out of Man podcast. <laughs> How are you doing? I, 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 I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I mean, it's been uh, it's been challenging times, obviously, with the, the COVID situation. And um, I think, um, you know, musically, I, I normally make my bread and butter from putting on concerts and shows and, and, and various wow. things like that. Um, but I'm also a music producer and and uh, I try and keep myself as, as, as creative as, as I possibly can. But it's been a bit challenging because obviously all the shows got cancelled and and that was that was one thing and then um, I think on top of that um, you know everyone was a bit unsure about where to go next and and so I just tried to kind of delve deep into what I could do rather than what I couldn't do and and try and keep the kind of positive energy flowing and. And thought, okay, well, I'd already written some books, and I thought, well, I'll try and do a podcast and try and entertain the students that are not getting education just now, and try and enter, entertain the the public that are sitting at home bored out, out their skin, and and yeah. um, and here we go. So, uh, that, I, and where are you based, Rory? I'm based um, just outside of Dollar. In, in Scotland, okay. so yeah. yeah. So I lived in Perthshire for thirteen years. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, that's. I mean, I, I mean, we we met years ago, years and years and years ago at the Edinburgh Festival, and um, 
there was a strange bill on because it was, um, I think there was a band from Peru on the bill called Apu from Peru. Yeah. There was there was uh, Ralph McTell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, very strange. And 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 then you came on. <laughs> well, it, was, I, it was it was a Marcos, was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That, and, and, and I remember coming in, coming into the dressing room and um, at the time, in the afternoon, believe it or not, my father was on the bill as well, on the same bill. So oh, wow. it was my... Who, who's so, your father? Well, my father at the time was... My father's actually a famous folk, a uh, Scottish folk singer called Mark Nicholl. And... Uh, and he he was signed with Transatlantic and with Hamish and Ralph and, yeah. and Matt McGinn and and uh, all of the the guys Billy Conley and everybody. But uh, at that time he had changed his act from being a folk singer to a hypnotist, a stage hypnotist, and he was called the Man. Wow, that is fantastic! <laughs> Isn't that is, it? That's, I love it. Yeah. That's so awesome. so. I, I came backstage and met you, and and uh, you had the busiest dressing room. I mean, I've worked with literally thousands of artists since, and I still haven't met an artist with a busier dressing room than you. Probably <laughs> <laughs> <you're> the band. <laughs> yeah, it was the band, and it was the band, and I think at the time, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting you to be so humble as you were, and and you were very humble and very nice, and and you took the time to sit down and chat to me, and I was quite young at the time, and you and you and you you know you took a lot of energy on me, and and then you went and delivered a great performance, and I loved the show, and and, and that was that. So, um, but yeah, I mean that was that was a while back now, but but yeah, we have we have met before. <laughs> So. A long time ago, yeah. So, well, nice to meet you again, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and um, yeah, I had. I've got to be honest. I had no idea, you know, I, for some reason at the moment, there's a lot of people asking for interviews and stuff, which you know, I, I mean, I don't really have any reason to do them at the moment. But I always think it's nice to meet people, and yeah, you know, uh, and. And and I'm very glad I've met you before. That's good. And I've got very fond memories of that time because we just bought our house up in Scotland. So it would have been, what, what 92, 93? Yeah, it would have been somewhere in that, in that region. Around, about right, yeah. I like yeah. the fact that you're the same about those, you know, past years as I'm, yeah, around about then, you know. <laughs> around um, that, yeah, don't, don't ask me specific dates. <laughs> exactly. I said to someone the other day about 1988, and she said, I think you'll find it was actually 1989. I was like, Ooh, sorry, mate. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was a fantastic, I really enjoyed that time because the we just moved up to Scotland and the whole, everyone came to stay with us and we bought this old um, derelict schoolhouse yeah, which which my ex husband still runs as a recording studio up in Perthshire mm. near Dunning called Teapot Studios, which yeah. is a magical place. Do you know it? Do you know him? I know, I know of it. I've never I've never actually recorded there, but I know of it. Yes, yes. Um and uh and so basically everyone. So there were about thirteen people staying in the house, and we literally it was just it was a mess. I mean, the house was derelict pretty much when we bought it. So. Uh, it was good fun and Herbie Flowers came up who's one of my all-time favorite people and uh, mm. we, we had fun as I'm sure you can imagine 
Well, you know, I was actually just uh, on Friday, we did an interview um, and I spoke to uh, Durja and uh, Lorai. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, Durga and Lorelai, yeah. Yeah, and 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 of course, um, uh, you know, you obviously worked with with Georgia as well, so that was, so that was a kind of another thing. But I did, I had no idea that you. I mean, it's amazing when when you you know obviously I know you as Sam Brown the the singer, but but um, you know I mean I, I knew of your father as well, obviously, and. Um, but but I did I had no idea about your kind of your previous stuff to the kind of Sam Brown stuff and then we, we obviously prior to the interview I started to do a bit of digging and and and, and then I realised oh well you know you, you you worked with Pink Floyd as well and you did this and you did that as well so that was pretty interesting because you know because I think I think this is the thing is you know it, this is what this podcast is about really is is about the journey of people because. I think a lot of people start off in music and they think that they get a record deal and then they have a, a hit record or they don't have a hit record, depending on what that, that works out like. And then they have a career from that point onwards. But there's always the the, the, the before stuff, the, the stuff that nobody sees or maybe the, the, the diehard fans know about, but the actual public really probably don't know very much about what happened previous to, to, to these things and, and 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 it's amazing. So you've got a great story. I mean a fantastic story. I mean you come from a entertainment family for a start. Yeah. So you yeah. got you got to tell me some of this Sam. I mean I know I know you've been, <laughs> I, I, I know you've been through some of this before, but I kind of like to go down the down down the kind of different road of the, the the challenges that you faced and 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 how you overcame those challenges because I think a lot of people listening you know, obviously think that, that pop stars or, or, or people that have done well in music have, have got a privileged life. But as we both know, there's so many hours on the road. There's so much recording time in the studio, getting it right, writing the right songs, writing bad songs. We've all written hundreds of them. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and that type of thing. And, and you know, but what, what was the journey like for you? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, you have a bit of an insight yourself, don't you? Because your dad was a musician. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I'll try and keep it fairly brief because <laughs> if, if I'm rambling on, Rory, just just tell me. If you've got a buzzer or something, you can press no, it. No, 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 no. Once, no once I get going, mate, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I started working professionally when I was 12. Yeah. Um, and that my first gig was a gig with the Small Faces. Uh, well, it was a I was doing backing vocals on their out on one of their later albums, not one of the famous ones. Uh, but Steve Marriott was a good friend of my dad's. Um, so basically, I I didn't really see. I think people have this kind of idea of this family home where everyone's happy and like the like the Blooming Cassidy family. You know, it's not. It wasn't like that. I can tell you no. that it wasn't like that. So. My dad was my dad has always toured, always, and my mum quite often would tour with him. So we didn't see our parents ever such a lot, um, and we had sort of nannies and au pairs and stuff. But basically, my parents both came from, I suppose, working class backgrounds. Um, yeah. You know, my dad from the East End of London and my mum from Liverpool, and uh, so we our upbringing was was pretty down to earth, I would say. Um, 
from a sort of principal point of view, the reality was, you know, uh, not seeing parents for weeks on end and then all of a sudden all these mad hippie parties because, of course, it was the 60s and 70s, so everything yeah. was quite bonkers. Although my mum and dad were really quite sort of traditional, I think, in their outlook and the way they lived their lives. They weren't mad druggies or anything like that. <clears throat> so they were quite quite normal. Um, so I started singing and writing my own songs. I started writing first when I was about 11 or 12 and I played classical piano. Um, I went on to write, as you say, some completely dreadful songs um, no. <laughs> and, and went through that process. But I loved writing. That was my first love. And I started singing, doing backing vocals with my mum, who sang with T-Rex and Bowie and Cockney Rebel. Um, wow. <laughs> and started off, she, well, when she started, she was in a group called the Vernon's Girls. So that's late 50s, early 60s. And they were a sort of singing, dancing troupe from Liverpool who were supposed to have worked at Vernon's Pools, but which quite often they hadn't, you know. Um, and uh, so mum came down to London when she was 17, I think. And mum and dad met on a TV show. And mum went on to become a very well-respected and well-known backing vocalist. So a behind this, more of a behind-the-scenes kind of person. Dad very much did what he's always done, which is his shows, his gigs, you know, and a bit of PR here and there. Yeah. And I used to just go along with my mum. I loved the studio. We had a studio at home. The studio was where I felt most at home. I love recording studios. I still do. I miss them terribly in this age of you know, no desks and computer software. I miss the tape machines and the huge desks and the everyone doing a mix together, you know, getting on the faders. Okay, Jock, you need to pull those down in the middle eight, you know, all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, you're on one to eight and you're on 16 to eight. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Until uh, Mr. Massenberg, you know, came along and invented the, the wonderful machines. So anyway, so I did backing vocals. I was writing songs and when I was... 15 or 16 I did a film with B.A. Robertson and I met a lady who was managing him called Lisa Denton and she and I got on very well she loved my music she said do you want to work together and that was the beginning of it really so I continued to do backing vocals um I mean it's quite a long list and no. you know I mean I loved it I loved doing backing vocals working with other singers creating parts you know it was just I loved it I really loved it and I worked very hard um so when I was 19 I bought my own flat which mm -hmm. is great in Stoke Newington in London and uh and just continued to work really right through till when I lost my voice in 2007. So how, how does it work then I mean We'll, we'll come back to the voice uh, losing thing, but 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 how does it work then? So 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 you're in that environment. I mean, I've produced lots of records, and I've been an artist at one point in time, and I've you know I mean I think all in all I've released nearly eight hundred records, and so I mean I, I I've been I've been around been around a lot of names and a lot of different people, but what I'm amazed about is when I listen to your voice. Um, I mean, I would, um, you know, I mean, without getting a visual of you, um, you were nothing like I was expecting you to look like when I first, you know, when I first heard the record, I was like, there's so much soul here. There's so much soul. 
and quality in your voice that and control you know you had very very kind of almost modern techniques you know in the respect of you know when when you listen to the the, the how you used the falsetto all the you know and you were you were bouncing from that 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 wasn't common to do back then that was quite an unusual yeah. singing style so where did all that come from where did that um sort of influence come from who were you listening to to to, to create um, that style well but first of all i just you're talking about the vocal on stop aren't you really well, I'm talking about yeah. I mean, stop. But there's other tracks as well where you, where where, where I yeah. think you 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 kind of you, you know you you really use quite a large and you've got a quite you know you've got the the kind of rasp as well. You you've got the the hard rock edge, but you've got that soul edge, and and you've got all these different flavors. But again, you know, normally a singer. This is my big my my big gripe with today. A lot of singers. If I if I have a hundred singers come into the studio one after the other and they're 17, 18 years old, they all sound the same. No one comes in with a a tone. No one comes in with something, oh, that's different. Or that's 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 you know, no one comes in with that. I mean, I mean, my first kind of big record I made was with Edwin Starr. And oh. um and Edwin came in the studio and, and you know, Edwin's voice was just I mean, it was insane. I mean, it was, I mean, to work with him in a studio was insane because he had this tone and I've heard a lot of fantastic singers who can sing soul music or uh, that kind of Motowny sound, but they didn't sound, you know, Edwin had that very special attack, the, the lyric, attack the vocal. He had the rasp, he had the, he had the range. Um, and he, you know, and, and and very much I feel that you have that as well, you know. So so I was just kind of curious how that developed because, again, it's it's just an unusual thing to pick up on, especially from a singer from the UK because they they generally don't have the influences maybe of someone in the stage. You know? Yeah, well, I think I mean I was very fortunate um, with my influences and with my working life. I must say though, I worked with Edwin Stark a couple of times, not many, you know, usually on a TV show or a live thing where they had lots of yeah. different people on. And he was just, or he always pulled it out of the bag. And I would, I would liken his voice to, I think Tom Jones also has one of those voices that is so incredibly rich and vibrant and colourful, yeah. you know. Amazing. It's got yeah. all this stuff in it. And I think you're right. I think what's happened a lot nowadays is that people have kind of techniqued themselves out of any real sound in their voice, you know. Uh, but yeah. I must say, I must do a plug here and tell you that you obviously haven't heard my son singing, Rory. <laughs> no, I've not heard your son singing. Okay, but I'm going to tell you about I'm going to tell you about the influences thing, as you have asked. Um, so basically, I think really I learned to sing by listening. To records and singing along with them but yeah. to a you know completely OCD level of every tiny inflection every tiny bit of pitching everything every swoop every you know emulate so emulating singers and mm. the singers I listened to were not in this chronological order uh, Joni Mitchell, Kate Bush, Aretha Franklin, I love Quincy Jones for the production 
Randy Newman, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, the Fat Back Band. Um, you know, so that's that's that was kind of they were my starting blocks. I think the other thing that influenced me massively, even though it was just a tiny part of my life, is um, my mum and dad used to have a lot of parties and a lot of friends, and it was a very my mum was a very welcoming person, so a lot of people came through our house. And one of her best friends was a lady called Joanne Stone. And I don't know, I don't know how old you are, but there was a record in the, it must have been the 70s, early 70s, by um, a, a duo called R&J Stone. It was a black woman and a white man, yeah. white Englishman, black American lady, Joanne Stone. And Joanne Stone and Russell, but Joanne was my mum's best friend. And she lived in England and was from America. Um, she then introduced my mum to Madeline Bell. We yeah. used to go to Madeline's shows. I don't know if you've ever seen Madeline Bell, but she is an incredibly powerful artist and woman. Uh, she's yeah. got an amazing, again, coming back to that really rich voice. Um, and I remember Auntie Madeline taking us to see Earth, Wind & Fire live at Wembley. Wow, I was just completely blown away. I mean, talk about singing, you know, yeah. those guys. You've got... The harmonies, ah, incredible. The harmonies stuff going on and everything you know and <laughs> bonkers I just couldn't believe it and so I think we I had all the normal things of that age well actually they weren't normal because all my friends are listening to punk rock and really awful music in my humble opinion at that time yeah um, but uh, I had this black American influence as well so you know, because Madeline and Joanne were a big part of our lives. We used to all dance around, we'd listen, we'd all sing together. And I went on to work with them and do backing vocals. So I think that, and I didn't even know, I didn't realise when I wrote Stop that it was a blues. I, I had no concept of genres at all mm. yeah. until much later in my life. So does that answer the question? It does. No, it does. I mean, I mean, I think, I think this is, I think this is the interesting thing, though. You know, what? Why should, why should, you know, I, I don't really like the genre thing because, you know, when people talk to me about genres and so on, I mean, my, you know, I, I think that's a kind of shame to kind of get into that because, you know, as I said, I worked with Edwin Starr, but 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 from Edwin Starr. Um, I was lucky in the respect that Edwin was doing a, a show in Birmingham in England and so was Prince. And Prince was doing the NEC and Edwin was doing a gig um, somewhere else. And, and uh, Prince finished his gig at the NEC and went to see Edwin's show at night time because it was on later at night. And Prince and his band turned up and Edwin started talking to Prince about you know, Prince had said, what are you working on now? And, and Edwin and me had just released this record. And, and so Edwin had brought it up to Prince. And that, you know, a couple of years down the line led me to go over to Minneapolis and work with Prince. And, and what was interesting about that was you're talking about this genre thing, was he was so eclectic in his, you know, one minute it's jazz, the next minute he's doing pop, the next minute he's doing rock. The next minute he's doing rap. The next minute he's doing this. Yeah. And 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 I really was, you know, forget about all the usual stuff when people talk about Prince. I was blown away with the fact that genre just didn't enter his mind. Yeah, no, I it wait, was, 
this this is mind. this is a good song you know this yeah. is a good song irregardless of yeah. whether it's this that or the, this is just a good song and and i really loved that and i loved the I, I, I did a big series of podcasts with some of the the, the prince uh people shall we say the people that were surrounding prince at that time and working with prince and what i found was amazing and nobody nobody quite believes me but but when i was over there uh, it was 2006 and, and we were doing um like we were going to a venue for example and we turn up at the venue and you know you would have mint condition turn up and then dr fink would turn up and then eric leeds would turn up and then paul peterson would turn up and jelly bean johnson would turn up and they would just all jam together but yeah. No money. Nobody's getting paid anything, yeah. and they would do this all the time. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of musicians, though. And you can't. I mean, I've now not been able to sing properly for some years. You know, well, two thousand seven. So what's that? Fifteen years or something? Yeah. Is it? Is it fifteen years? Sixteen? I can't can't work it out. Uh, 14, Fourteen. Fourteen years. Fourteen years. There you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. But, you know, like I, I now, my partner is an artist and he listens to gen genres of music. There are things he likes, uh, but it just had never, as I said, it just never occurred to me. I have to say that I can actually see the sense in it now because, uh, well, not, not with making music necessarily, although I will talk about that in a bit because I am now making a specific genre of music because it suits my voice and what I can do with my voice. That's you know, but um, but I think uh, I think there's a little bit of both ways in this because I think if artists understood genre and marketing more, I think it would make in a very open and loving way. You know, I think it would make for a more successful uh, way forward for people because you know, uh, Mr. Smith who works in the grocery store likes Crosby, Stills and Nash. He likes Neil Young. He likes yeah. the 70s rock band. That's fair enough if he likes that. You know, he doesn't want to listen to rap. That's fine. So Mr. Yeah. Smith, if you're making that kind of music, he's going to want to hear it. And so I think artists would benefit from not being so, um, well, perhaps they're not in this day and age, actually, but certainly when I was younger, it was, as an artist, I was mortified when they when the marketing guy at A and M Records said, "Well, what is your music? What is it?" You know, because they couldn't pigeonhole it because it had Dixieland jazz, it had pop, it had a bit of dance music on there, it had more rock, it had sort of focused. I mean, stop is sort of like it's batshit crazy, isn't it? As far as genres go, no, well, that didn't bother me. I didn't see that as a problem because I felt each track worked in its own right. You know, had its own yeah. feel. But I do, yeah. I do think artists could benefit from maybe not being quite so on their high horse about it sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, th th this is, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, some, some people are obviously, I mean, at the time, I mean, what, what I never understood about the, the, I mean, with your voice and the songs and so on and so forth, what was the, I mean, when we, when, when we talk, I mean, I don't want to talk just about stop because I know that that's something that you've talked so much about in your past. And, 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 and so, but, but just to kind of brief over the top of it, when it comes to that record, I mean, it's a fabulous record. Everyone knows the record and, and that's why. But 
What I don't really understand is coming from a record company point of view or coming from even an artistic point of view is I think some of your other records are equally as good. You know, some of them I think possibly even are better than Stop in, in the respect of the way they're written and so on and, and constructed. But it felt to me that you never got the same backing or marketing, uh, you know. I think that's probably my own fault, to be fair. Um, I stopped, well, Stop was my first album. And, yeah. and basically, as soon as I signed my record deal with AM and my publishing deal with Rondor, not so much the publishing, because uh, my publisher was incredibly encouraging. And in fact, I'm still with him today. He's he's great, he's a Scottish guy, Stuart Hornell. And he's he's a great bloke. And he sent me out to LA. But the whole thing about it was, how can we make you better? Because actually you're a bit disappointing. Now, the latter part of that sentence, I think, yes, it's probably me being a bit oversensitive about things. But equally, when you're putting yourself out there, I mean, they really did. They were like, well, you can't wear that to start with, you know. And have you been to a hairdresser recently? And, you know, it was that. It was entering into show business, which I had a massive aversion to because I didn't yeah. like what I saw with my dad. I didn't like seeing someone tell the same jokes on stage every night. I didn't like the fact that he planned what he was going to say. I didn't like the fact that he was cagey when he did an interview. I'm just not like that. I don't believe in that. I believe in human beings and I believe... You know, I will consider what I say as any person does in that I would hate to offend you if I was talking to you or although I've been pretty fucking offensive in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I just heard that coming out of my mouth and I thought, what a fuck. <laughs> no, but, no, but basically I wouldn't, you know, I mean, when I was doing stop, it was like 20 interviews a day in a hotel room. Yeah. I would, every person that I met, that was my time. Those people were, that was their time and my time. Nothing yeah. to do with, I mean, I knew it was PR. Obviously I did. But the, I think so many artists are not aware, certainly in those days, that they are entering into this machine. Yeah. And and I, I was quite easygoing, actually. I was like, well, okay, if I have to wear a red top, I will, fine no problem, whatever, you know. So I was quite, it, it didn't seem important to me, but I think you can really see that with that record. Whereas, you know, subsequent records where I've had more control over it, I see myself in them. They're not all me and they're not literal mm -hmm. lyrics and they're not, you know, in diary form necessarily, but they are about my experience of life. And yeah. I think that's important in any form of art, which I consider music to be. Because yeah, of course. If you are expressing yourself in a creative or artistic way, whatever it is, a sculpture, a record, a live gig, whatever, a mm. hairdo, the way you dress, you know, it has to come from you. And it's about realizing who you are. So that stop that first record did not assist me in any way with that because I was not a confident person. Mm. So so it just pushed me down and pushed me down. And so when my mum became ill uh, in 1990 um, and then we realised she was going to die, I was 
we were doing the second album and I was promoting, I was promoting for three years, I was always away. And I came back and we, I nursed my mum with my aunt and a friend at home. <clears throat> and the record, and then I wrote 43 Minutes, which was my third album before and after she died. And the guy that I'd signed to at a Records had gone. He was a fantastic bloke called Brian Shepherd, who now lives in America. And uh, the new person who's uh, called Howard Berman was mm. just not, he just did not see music in the same way as me at all. I could talk to him and that was fine, but I had serious issues with the record company then. And he said, yeah. this album, he, well, his words were of 43 minutes, this album is creatively brilliant, but commercially a disaster. And you need to record a single to stick on the end of it. And I was like, yeah, mate, you're having a laugh. I, you know, that's not actually going to happen because this is a, it's a concept album, really. Yeah. You've heard 43 minutes, but it was, it was what well, you have because you came to Marco. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's still there, Rory. Yeah, we're yeah, still here. Still here. We froze. We froze for a second there. Yeah, I came. I came to Marcos, and I yeah, I've heard forty-three three, three minutes, and I, I mean, I think it's a fabulous, a fabulous album. Um, it's 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 forty-three minutes and so many seconds, isn't it? If I yeah. remember right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, you know, he was so dismissive of it. And I I went away and I thought about it and I was a completely recouped artist. And I went in, I said, look, Howard, I said, I, I don't see that there's a future relationship here. Um, you don't see where I want to go with things and I don't see where you want to go with things. And so, and they let me go. It took me a long time to get the album back. But uh, after that, I'm sorry, in a very long way, I'm round, I'm coming to your, to answer your question in a way, which, uh, actually, I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> it was there. It was there in my mind. And now it's gone. <laughs> oh, I remember. Yeah, why wasn't why weren't the other albums successful? So uh, basically, April Moon I think was a bit too long, in my opinion. I think it was a great album. I had some great tunes on it, but the record company yeah. weren't interested because I don't know what they wanted. They wanted another stop. Well, I wrote yeah. at least two other fantastic soul ballads with Greg Sutton who I co-wrote Stop with they weren't interested nothing nothing was good enough you know but then Stop they they weren't that keen on Stop either really I mean radio wouldn't play it in this country it took yeah. for Europe to embarrass them into playing it before it actually got on the radio so it was big in Holland it was big in Holland though first wasn't yeah. it yeah, yeah. It went, but there was a great uh, the guy see the guy over there head of marketing Rudy can't remember his surname he was a he was fantastic. He was just, you know, one of those people full of energy, very positive bloke, incredibly tall. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was Rudy was great, and uh, and he uh, he got it to number one. I didn't get it to number one. It's it's hard work. You know what it's like releasing a record. Yeah. It's not you need you need you need people with energy, and you need you need that vibe. That I, I think there's that camaraderie thing that goes on with, you know what way back in the day um i was around when when um the swedish group ace of bass were getting sort of put together and and, and the music was getting done and you can feel it you you know there's this there's this energy even in the studio when the records are being made you can feel it you can feel this energy this this vibe that everybody's on the same page everybody's excited there's a kind of 
an energy there and you, you, you know you just get a vibe from it yeah. I mean I, I, I've always I've, I'm, I'm not I don't have any sort of great talent and skill when it comes to you know fortune tellings and things like that but but what I do have is, is is I have an ear for saying you know if that if something's a hit record I can tell it's a hit record immediately just on the, the fact that as soon as I hear it I, I, you know, you, you get this feeling over you, and, I, and I'm very seldom wrong with that. And and I, and I think when it comes to, when it comes to, you know, certain, I mean, I, I totally understand you when it comes to the, the working with the record labels and that difficult sort of thing because they're looking, and and you know, I've always kind of stood in, in with one foot in both camps because I've been an artist and I know how difficult it is to, you know, you 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 make something you really love and then they tear the soul out of it and, 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 and then, oh, can you not do a new mix and do a remix and do this and do that and change this part and take those drums out and take this and, and you're like, but I love all that. And, 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 and then, you know, they, they, they see it a different way, but I, I, I do understand what they, I mean, you know, it's a music business. They're trying to sell as many records uh, as they possibly can and and um, that's all they're really interested in at that point in time and 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 the artist is obviously trying to keep their art complete and and it's a and it's a war it's it's almost a little mini war going on of yeah of, you know it certainly used to be I think um, I don't know about now but I I do feel quite optimistic about the future of music in a strange kind of way because I think the, the fact that people have been enabled to make their own music at home, it takes that away from it and, and you know, it takes that business thing away from it. And I think it's like it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. I think in some ways, I wouldn't say which, but, you know, like how men and women essentially are, are different creatures, aren't they? You know, we're yeah. different creatures. We're not, I'm not saying in that in a good or a bad way. We just, we have different ways about us. And in the same way, you know, I met, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of record company people. They're just people. They're just people. They're not trying to steal your soul. You know. No. And, no. and I think, and I think that that we just on both sides there's a massive lack of understanding. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's good that the, the the all the majors now it is a business and it's very clearly a business. You know. Um, no. But then you get all these little bits and pieces that are happening. It's so exciting, isn't it? You know, there's so many different kinds of music. You, I mean, I only recently joined Bandcamp because I'm dreadful with all the online stuff. Uh, but mm. it's fantastic. And the stuff I get through, it's not stuff I'd always want to listen to. But I'd like to know it's there and I like to know it's going on. And, mm. you know, so I, I think when MCPS and PRS and all the other global organizations get their shit sorted out i think it's going to be good i think it's going to be good for everyone actually i'm really yeah that. well th th this is the point i mean I'm, i mean i think very much you know you're, you're you're coming on to kind of prevalent stuff for me because you know i've always looked at the music industry as i mean i started when obviously you know you could sell records and earn a living from selling records and and um and obviously you know you did shows and and things and and that was fine but but nowadays obviously the record sales are not as good as they were and you've got the streaming services that have taken over um 
and you know obviously streaming doesn't pay as much as as as, as people actually buying the record and so on but I think there are more opportunities now than there was in 1985, for an example, because in 1985, you know, there was only four television channels yeah. uh, in the UK. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and, and now, now there are so many television channels that all need music for all of their programmes. And you have Netflix and Prime TV and this and this and this and this. So... Uh, I mean, I think all in all, you know, you might have as many as 8,000 channels now um, that all need content. And, and this is the problem is, is, is I think that, but where do you earn a living um, is, is, is I think, you know, from, I think from the, the, the sort of balance of where it was before, it was quite obviously there's a path to earn a living because you could do a live show and make X amount of pounds from your live show, if you built up your popularity from records, you also made some money from records, publishing, yeah. and so on. Whereas I think today, it's really focused heavily on the publishing side and the synchronizational side, um, rather than yeah. on, you know, the, the live side's still okay, but not through COVID, obviously, but apart from COVID, um, the, 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 the live side is still a great way to make money, but from the music side on its own as, and I see music now as more promotion than, than, than it is anything else. It's what the artist is trying to portray themselves to be. You know, this is, this, is the, this is the canvas, this is who we are. And if you want to buy into that, then great. Because I mean, if you take big artists now, major artists like Lady Gaga or whoever that are getting all the backing from the major labels, their album comes out, they may they may make a, a million dollars or that might have been $25 million in the 80s, you know? So they're only making a million dollars now and um, and, and, and they're, they're, they're selling, but they sell 10 million T-shirts with Lady Gaga's Cool or something on the front of it. And, and, and at the end of the day, so it's all changed into merchandise and, and changed into different platforms, but this is something that I noticed. I mean, you, you mentioned you didn't like promotion and marketing. So, so this, this was quite interesting for me to speak to you because for someone that doesn't like to put themselves uh, on that front page, how do, you, how do you connect as much with the public as you, you, you once did? Because let's be honest, I mean, Sam Brown's, probably pivotal moment would have been stop yeah which is the most marketed commercial record that you made at the time you know the one that got you know albeit it's a fabulous record but but still that's the one so that went against everything that you know you saw yourself yeah but how do you how do you do it the other ways Sam, how do how do you how do you do it without having that mechanism? How do you get yourself above the parapet today? Well, I think well, there's a few things there. First of all, I, I'm not. I may have said I didn't like PR and marketing. I don't think I did. I mean, I do see the value of it. Yeah. Um, I think I didn't like. I 
in retrospect, I think I was bullied into an image, basically, is what I was trying to say. Oh, uh, okay. But, but whatever, it does, doesn't really, it's irrelevant, really. Um, I think that uh, music, like so many things now, has, has to be holistic. I think that people who have been successful are accustomed to earning millions, and you say just a million. But for me, you know, I my hit with stop has sustained me through my whole life. Yeah, of course. Um, I know it doesn't with everyone. I know that essentially I'm a one-hit wonder. But my life has a lot of strands to it. I'm working with Jules Holland for 15 years. I was playing to a lot of people. You know, so yeah. that that's a form of promotion. Um, I've always worked and everything that I do is a form of promotion, if you like. Um, so now I have a fan base. So I think if I didn't get my head above the parapet now, if I was trying to, I would still be able to run a career just from what I've got because I haven't exploited any of it. You know, I haven't done social media, I haven't done any of that stuff at all. And I still have an audience out there and I still connect with that audience. They write to me, there are groups, there are, you know, no. touch with people. So I think, I think, first of all, in answer to your question, I think we all have to be satisfied with less. I think we all have to accept that it's okay to not have millions or a million. It's okay mm. to make enough to live. I, yeah, I think yeah. For me, that's it. I think, I think the whole world's too greedy, if I'm honest. That's my mm. view. And I would, I would I'm, agree with that. I'm a greedy yeah. person. Put a plate of cheese in front of me, I'll eat the bloody lot. You know, give me a bottle of cheese, <laughs> give me a bottle of gin, I'll drink the lot. I'm a greedy person. Um, but like everyone, I can see the sense in in having less and giving more to people who need it. I was a very basic socialist view, you know, but and mm. I'm not overly political. I'm not, you know, a strong feminist. I'm not this or that or the other. I'm outspoken and I have my opinions. But I just think that it is there's enough there for everyone. You know, once the live circuit is up and running. I don't understand this whole download thing, though, Rory. I've got to say, I said to my son, I need a CD to play in my car, mate. And he's like, no. I'm not done like that anymore. I'm like, well, yeah, but it is in my life, you know. I've got the yeah. money. I'll pay you. So I don't, <clears throat> I wonder about that because I think, I can't believe that a CD or a vinyl record is completely, entirely defunct. Just can't believe. I don't think that's true. I think people like to have a thing. I think a physical people, thing, yeah. They like can hold buy, them, yeah. They like to buy a thing, you know. And it takes the whole streaming thing takes so much value out of making a record because I don't. When I get something on Spotify, it's all in the they place. It all in the wrong order, you know. I don't want that. I want it. I want to listen to the album. I want to listen to Ladies of the Canyon in the order it was put together in, that's part of the process. That's part of making record, isn't it, you know? Oh, well, I would agree with all of that. I, I think, I think you know, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that, that, you know, I mean, back in um, probably 2001, 2002, I'd invested heavily in recording studios. Um, at the time, I had a, a, a big complex and... and um, I had producers from all over Europe working in the complex and, um, you know, we had the big mixing desk, as you talked about, and we had 
we had all of the stuff and then along came Napster and LimeWire and all these other things and and the record companies just started dropping like flies they you know our work dried up and it became quite frightening because and I, I was I was an old school guy I was I was one of those people that dealt with the record label they would send me an artist I would develop the artist we would make the record I'd get paid X amount of pounds the record came out we all got some royalties and 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 that was the business and and um you know, on a, on an afternoon, we'd go to the record shop and look for some cool cool music. You know, and 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 all of that stuff, all the romance of that, all just dropped. And it took me years, and I mean years. It took me years of studying, and for the first two three years, I just didn't understand any of this new modern way at all. And everybody, I went. I used to go over to Medium in France to, to, to Cannes and, and I met with all the record companies and we'd sit down and I think all of us were of a similar age, maybe some were older than me, but we'd all sit down and everybody had the same thing on the, the end of the, we don't get it anymore. We don't know what, why, we, you know, we don't know what we're doing. I mean, this, this, this just isn't working. And, um, and, and, and the laugh of it was at the time I met, a guy called Alan Levy, who was the boss of Universal. And he had just spent, I can't remember the artist, but he had just spent half a million dollars on this pop video for this artist. And YouTube was quite, you know, this was coming through at this time. And he said, I've just spent half a million on this video. He said, and it's got 800,000 views. He said, but there's this kid in Korea body popping and that's got 25 million views. <laughs> and he couldn't understand that. He said, and he's done that for free, <laughs> you know, and, and he couldn't understand why his video that he spent all this money on is, is, is less than, than this Korean kid body popping. And it took years of sitting down and trying to work out, the the, the 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 new ways and how to survive in the new ways and that's what made me write the books hit click because I was trying to sit there and go well what what actually is working out there is it true that the music industry is dead and it took all of those years of sitting down and I think for a period of time it was dead I think for a period of time maybe three four years the whole entire music industry just didn't know where it was going, what was happening. Record companies were signing artists on 360 deals because they thought, well, we can't make money from music, but we'll make money from the live concerts and the shows. Um, and everybody was a bit confused about where it was going. And then, um, and then I saw the light a little bit because I, I started to realize, well, there are ways and, um, you know, there, there was lots of ways of, of, of surviving, but it, it was maybe not the way that we wanted to do it, you know. And so I had to compromise at that point in time. And, and, and I think that was the hardest thing for me personally was, was to compromise. Yeah. Um, but speaking to an artist like yourself, I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you take the, 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 the image of you doing stop and then the image of you doing the 43 Minutes album, um, you know, and then and then the stuff that you did with Jules Holland. I mean, you know, you've got to admire 
someone like you that you haven't really compromised that much in the respect of maybe a little bit here and there, but you've kept yourself who you are, which is which is the art. Maybe that that has kept your fan base, you know, because they realise that you're true to what you are. Yeah. Whereas every a lot of people have had to compromise. Well, I think you know I'm not. I think I, the thing is, is uh, when you say compromise, I mean that is the only time in my life where I've felt strongly enough about something to have to walk away from it. You know, and I and I actually I don't think I don't think it was um, I don't think it was me digging my heels in and saying. Uh, you know, no, I'm not going to do that, sort of like a selfish child. I think it was more the fact that, and I was very aware that this would happen to a lot of people through throughout, you know, the course of the music industry, the contemporary music industry, say, from the 50s through till now, if you like, you know. I mean, yeah. most artists or a lot of people were fucked over by their record company, basically, from their point of view. Record company, yeah. like that, obviously. But to me, it was a lack of communication and a lack of understanding. And as a rather mature woman, artist, singer-songwriter now, I can I can see it all much more clearly, you know, and I have been able to for a few years. And I think, in a sense, marketing is part of everybody's life. You know, when I get yeah. up in the morning and I decide what to, I want to wear that day, I am marketing myself for myself yeah you know i am i want to see the best in myself i want to on that particular day look like a bloody lunatic so that my village just think oh dear what's <laughs> you, know? you know i want to wear bunches i might be nearly 60 but i'm gonna wear fucking bunches if you don't like it jog on mate you know and <laughs> that that thing of it brings everything into play. It's holistic. It brings into play how you feel about yourself, your mental mm. health, your yeah. self-respect, whether you take care of yourself. And that extends to how you treat people, how other people see you. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I'm kind of, I've, I haven't thought this out, but it is marketing isn't just a business venture. It's about life. It's about being your best, you know, isn't it? Yeah. yeah well, it is. I think it is. And I think it, I think as well, it, it, you know, I learned a lot working with some rappers because I was over in Miami with, with, with my wife and kids and we were walking down the street in South Beach. And I've told this story to, to you know, when I do seminars and t talk about music and, and we were walking down uh, South Beach and it was a beautiful day and this truck drove up and out jumped four guys and they started jumping on the roof of this truck and they started rapping and singing and um, and before you know it, they had maybe a thousand people surrounding this truck and they had even stopped the traffic. I mean, it was incredible. and. Um, and they were rapping and, 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 and the whole place was all, you know, because the sun, the environment, everything, everybody was, you know, enjoying what was happening. And they had this big sound system going on. And they suddenly opened the boot of the truck and sold their CDs. And this wasn't, I mean, this is 2015, maybe. And 
I sat there and I was watching them, and I went over and I bought a CD, and um, and I, 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 I sort of stood back and I was just watching the, the the kind of thing, and then I spoke to them and I said, you know, how's how's this going, you know, and and they said, well, I introduced myself, I told them that I was in the music industry, and they said, listen, you know, we do this, and what we do is we drive around city to city to city nonstop. And on an average day, they were selling roughly a thousand CDs, and and I'm sitting there going, the hustle that these guys had, it was incredible. It yeah. was just, it was a complete hustle, and I learned so much about that because what I realized was that they weren't waiting for people to come and buy their music; they were going to them with their music, yeah. and and you know here you go we're going to create the party right now in the street whether you like it or not it's a party and if you don't like it as you say jog on if you do like it buy our cd and they were going around and and i was amazed by this yeah and and and, and because i, I didn't, hadn't seen this tactic in the u i'd seen street buskers and things in the uk but this wasn't that this was this was better than that yeah. this this had something else to it and 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 then i realized that okay this is something else now. And, and, and then I realized that that hustle exists in America across, and so many of the artists over here who are sitting there wondering where their next pound could come from oh, or their next, totally you know. That. I totally agree with you. And, I, and I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, you can do that online. You can get yeah. out and you can do stuff. And, and I think people do, you know. Um, I mean, my my son is still based up in Scotland, but his he, he you know he's very much he's got that kind of energy, and his manager's got that that energy, and and he's to, he's he is a person who would get up. He say, yeah, come on, let's out, you know. But he'd do that. Music's about energy, isn't it? You know. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so tell me about the ukulele because I'm fascinated by this because again, I was I was a bit I was a bit taken aback because not not that i mean the ukulele for me is it, I, i'm looking at three of them sitting up here just now in front oh, of me <laughs> yeah i am actually yeah i've got three of them sitting up in the wall up here but 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 uh you know um it, it, it kind of fascinates me that that you know someone like yourself with you know we'll, we'll get to the voice bit if we if we can i don't want to keep you all day but we'll get to the voice bit as well but but just i'm curious what what intrigued you about the ukulele? Because that that's something that's uh, well, I wasn't I, I wasn't particularly intrigued. It was it was on the sofa and I uh, wrote a song on it, and that was two thousand. Um, mm. I I was thrilled because I am so rubbish at stringed instruments, and I've got to be totally honest with you. Um, I'm not a brilliant ukulele player. There are aspects of it I'm good at rhythm. You know, I can play. I'm because I'm quite grounded with rhythm. Um, but when it comes to picking and people talking to me about tab, I'm like, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> These are my pupils, you know. So um, it's been a, a, a steep learning curve. But I, when I lost my voice, I had few. I taught, I did vocal coaching, but I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I didn't feel right doing it because I had problems with my voice and I didn't know what they were. Although I'd, you know, since. Um, so after I toured with Pink Floyd, I had my second child and I lost my voice and I started vocal training then. And it's the best thing I ever did for my voice. I mean, I, after that, <clears throat> through to when I stopped singing, I just, I, you know, I, I did two hours training every day 
every single day. I loved it. It enabled me to sing gigs and gigs in a row. My voice was healthier. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't teach singing. And I'd been writing on the uke, so I could play a bit of uke. And a few people said to me, oh, can you teach me to play the uke? Friends, you know. I'm like, yeah, sure, yeah, come over. Uh, we'll do it at 7 o'clock every Thursday night, whatever you like, you know. So anyway, mm. so I went to a load of bother and got, did some charts. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't find charts online. I listened to a song. I did a chord chart. I kind of did these little diagrams where did it completely blind, which is what I always do. I'm a, I'm a kinesthetic learner, so I'm like, how do I make this work? You know, so mm. did that, went to all this bother. None of the buggers turned up, did they? So I'm like, <laughs> I put an ad in the local paper and I had nine people in my front room. And two months later, I had 22 people. And then four months later, I had 50 people. And then I couldn't fit them all into the room. So then I had to start another club. And I think now I've probably seen hundreds of people come through. What happens is, um, so I've got, at the moment, I've got about seven clubs on the go. So uh, two of them are online and five of them are, are real life clubs. And they've converted to online through, through lockdown. Um, but I just, well, first of all, I loved playing string instrument because I'd never been able to play guitar. My first instrument is piano. And... I I don't know about you, you because you're a writer, aren't you? I think. But um the yeah. so thing about writing for me is it's quite good to go in blind, so to not really know what you're doing with an instrument. And then and it and it because it's about feel and about the mood you want to create, I suppose, you know. Yeah. So um so yeah, and what I discovered or have discovered over the years is that I um, I think I'm quite a good teacher because I'm quite patient and I am actually interested in whether people learn or not um it's a job um i've made some fantastic friends coming out of the music bubble into real life has been a dreadful shock and i don't think i'll ever recover <laughs> 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 because it is a different world you know and you and also i hope that all my clubs are very inclusive of all sorts of different people and that's for me what makes it fantastic uh, well, rich people poor people young people old people women men homosexual people everyone you know anyone it's just for everyone and, yeah. and and i think that they i hope they benefit from my experience of music so yeah. which is that you, you don't you really don't have to be brilliant you know it's not about that it's about it is about enjoying it, which sounds cheesy, but it's true. But liking the sound of yourself, you know, if you don't like the sound of yourself, pick an easier song, pick a song yeah. to play, you know. So, and also I've encouraged a lot of people. So a lot of people come, obviously singing comes into it. So I teach them all harmonies, not so much these days, because obviously I can't really online. Um, but I teach them harmonies. We've had choirs. We go out to Paris for weekends and busk and we play in kiosks in Paris in the gardens and little clubs and we'll cram into little clubs and we do that. We've been to Prague. So we do lots of different things. We have our own uke festival and 
all the time. If I'm really honest, I'm still not putting my whole self into it because it's not, you know, it's something I've done and it's been brilliant for me. And I really appreciate the support and the loyalty of all of my pupils. But I've just recently started writing again and I, I just feel like I've come home, Rory. I really do. It's amazing. been the best thing, you know. Even I can't sing a note. Thank God for Melodyne. <laughs> well, 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 well the, 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 I mean, my father, <clears throat> my father was, a, as, as I said, he's still very much with us. And, and he was, uh, he writes the songs, or several songs every day. And he transformed, transformed himself from guitar and, 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 and things into the ukulele. And he plays the uke all the time. And he's continuously promoting the ukulele to me saying, you know, you need you need to you need to get into this ukulele thing. This ukulele thing's massive. You know, you you need to get into this ukulele thing, son. And 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 I'm like, you know, okay, dad. You know, and 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 then <laughs> and so, but 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 then and then I was like, you know, when I was looking for and I saw Sam Brown likes the ukulele too. Maybe I'm missing something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I did when I first started teaching. I was like, no Hawaiian shirts. No fucking pork pie hats. Never. Do not wear one on a gig. <laughs> out the door, mate. You know, but obviously I don't necessarily mean that, but I'm not really into the, uh, you know, it's a movement, isn't it? It's a ukulele movement. But to me, it's just a beautiful, you can play anything. We do, uh, we do hit me with your rhythm stick on ukulele. No. So that, you know, and it actually works pretty, pretty well. I mean, we've got a star singer for it who's a nutter. Um, but, you know, you can play most things. Um, and I think with a little bit of musical intuition, you can really make it a fabulous thing to be a part of. It's a community thing. That's what it is. Let me talk to you because you mentioned that a number of times now through this interview and it's I think it's very important for for the singers out there and, and everybody else as well just just to kind of get a, a background on it you've mentioned you've lost your voice um in 2006 is that right uh yeah that's kind of when it started happening yeah yeah so what what happened Sam what what, what? um well <clears throat> I should say I should start off by saying that I've never truly got to the bottom of it and I've never got my voice back as it was. Um, but that's not to say that I won't. Um, I, I've got a few ideas. But basically what happened was I was on a gig. Um, I, I was, I, where do I start with this? So I was splitting up with my husband and there was a lot of stuff going on. I was commuting to work from Perthshire. So I was working very hard, but that's me, that's what I do. Um, and, or was. <laughs> um, and I, I was having a breakdown, basically. I was having a breakdown. And my I was on a gig with Jules in London, it's a corporate thing. And I just went for a note and it just came in under. And I, so I had to kind of push it up. And I was like, yeah, that didn't feel right. It wasn't a big thing. I noticed it happening a couple more times. And in the end, I just couldn't, I can't, so I can't get pitch and closure. So I can't hit a note and hold it. Um, so it could be menopause. 
although it's been going on for a long time, if it is, although I'm nearly through it. So that that's good, and it's definitely got better. Uh, it could be psychological. It could be emotional. Mm. I don't think it's dietary because I've pretty much tried everything. I've seen several good vocal coaches. I've had two courses of speech therapy. I've had polyps removed. I've had a bleed cauterized. Uh, so, you know, no one's really got anything to offer. People generally uh, tend to just shrug uh, professional people who I go to see about my voice. So a couple mm. of people I've stuck with and they've been very supportive. But I'm now kind of at a point where I, I'm making music again uh, because I basically haven't made any music since 2007. I haven't done any writing. It's very. It's been a very difficult transition to um, think I'm going to write a song now and then you create a melody in your head and you can't sing it. So now yeah. what I'm doing now is I'm writing where so I'm singing the melody with the knowledge that I can make it work, whether it's a bit of auto-tune, a bit of, you know, just spending time on it, a bit of doing the right mm. exercises to get my voice in the right place. So, uh, so I'm sort of working with it now. But um, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm very, I was asking uh, uh, Dodger about this as well, uh, or Durga, um, about about her voice and, and so on. I'm always kind of curious to the fact that, you know, why certain singers um, have, you know, um, you know, some some singers lose their voice, and some singers maintain. You you mentioned Tom Jones earlier on. I mean, Tom Jones' voice, I think, is the best it's ever been. <laughs> I mean, he 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 just continues to amaze me with the strength of his voice, and yet with his age, you would think it would start to get frail and so on, but it's not. It's it's very very strong, and and and. Yeah, so so I was very kind of curious to, because because it's a, it's a almost a, a sad story in a sense that 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 you know that, that but but I think you know from other research I did about you you know you mentioned a few times confidence as well. I mean, do you think that that was a a part to play in this? Is, is whether you think you know it's it's a, it's a bit like I, I imagine when I was a kid, I used to be a dancer and and. Uh, I was learning to do a back somersault and it was always that thing of, am I going to land on the back of my head? Mm. And, and so you were so scared to do it that, that, that you, you never gave the commitment to it. So yeah. you, you, yeah. you know, so you, so you couldn't do it. And, and then that, that sort of thought came into your head. And then every time you tried it, you thought, but I'm going to hit the back of my head. And then they take you on these soft mats and then, you do it and then you do it and you do it and you do it and you do it a hundred times and then you get confident and then you go onto hard surface and then the thought comes into your head, but whatever hand, you know, and, and it yeah, takes, you know, is, is that the kind of thing that you think was going um, on? I, well, I think it may be, that's part of it, but I'm, you know, I was an incredibly committed singer and very, I mean, you know, I felt very comfortable in those shoes and, I think what you're talking about is fear. And I think that, yes, there is definitely a level of fear across the board for me. And, and that, yeah. but I, I would like to draw a distinction though. I think, I think this is a, a female issue. 
I think mm. I'm not saying that the menopause is entirely responsible for the problems I've had with my voice, but it is definitely a big part of it. Even if that is the fear and the anxiety that comes with going through those changes. And I yeah. think if I'm really honest and I, I, even as I say that I'm frightened of being shot down in flames because I know people out there will just, you know, uh, mock it or, you know, scoff at this idea but I think it's been going on since I was 40 years old. I think the changes in my body have been going on for that long. Shirley yeah. Bassey didn't sing for 11 years in her 40s and 50s. Uh, lots of people, Julie Andrews had problems. People have problems for different reasons. But I think if you are, so I was a working, disciplined, strict singer. Um, I mostly, I drank too much, but as a general rule, I took care of myself. And my voice did not suffer. My voice, I didn't lose my voice on gigs. This is after I've done training. Before that, I was rubbish, this stop period. Um, so I don't believe that it's it's down, it's not technique, it's not down to technique. That's what I'm trying to say. So mm. I, I'm pretty, I feel, I feel certain about that. Um, but I I think it's you you mentioned Tom Jones and I get that. I don't I haven't seen any men who've had similar problems to me unless they were psychological issues, which maybe mm. that is part of it. Yeah, yeah. Confusing. But I, I'm happy at the moment because I am writing and I'm really enjoying it. That is amazing. And we and, and I really can't wait to hear hear the new the new stuff. I mean that that's going to be amazing. So I, I, what what what's your your um what what is the, the the sort of future home for Sam Brown then? I mean, you're mentioning you're writing again. That's fabulous. What what's 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 the what's the thing that you would like to achieve now? Or in 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 the thing is is it? You know, obviously, you want your kids to do well, and you you know you you know you want your 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 thing. But what's your 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 own self achievement? What what would you like to achieve now? moving forward well, you know lockdown's been good to me uh, rory because i have learned to knit a horizontal buttonhole and that to me is an achievement that is <laughs> that is a goal i never thought i would attain um i think i'm i feel i feel like i've got a lot to offer as an artist actually now more more than ever in in fact um so i've got a live album coming out which was recorded in 2004 um, and I've written 11 songs towards a new album, which is kind of electronica. So I'd like to see that. So I'm wow. I'm getting back on the bike, actually, now. Um, for some bizarre reason, I've had a few publishers interested in what I'm doing, and I have no idea why. My daughter does, uh, as I'm sure many people of her age do, but she's obviously she's fantastic. Um, and she is gonna do my social media management, so I get do sort that out. I've got a whole load of. Uh, I think I, I think in short, my goals now are to be on top of things, and to continue giving myself the space to be creative because that's what lockdown's done for me. It's given me the space to think. Okay, I'm teaching you, but actually. I can now put that over here. That's safe and compact and working in this little time frame here. So I now have this space to do these other things, which I've been wanting to do for a long time. And one of them has been writing. And and uh, as I say, I'm loving it. And and I'd love to write with other people. I'm a very unambitious person. I always have been. So if, I, if I'm happy, 
I'm happy and that's that's good enough for me. That's that's great. That's great. If I, I ask everybody this, uh, Sam, and I have to ask you the same question just, just because um, it, it's became a, a, a pattern, shall we say. But, it, it, you know, th- th- through your whole career, you've had your ups and downs and you've had your your highlights and your success stories and everything. But with that experience that you've had, if you could pocket one piece of advice, or I know, I know, one piece of advice, one little pocket of magic to offer the listenership, what would it be? Don't do anything you don't want to do. Whoa! <laughs> yes, I love it. Okay, and, and 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 give me give me your favorite your favorite uh, because what I'll do is I'll, I'll put the song at the end of this interview, but I would like to I'd like to uh, have a song that, that you know I mean obviously everyone's expecting stop which I'll probably put at the start, but 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 let, let let's 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 talk about a song that you would like to hear at the end of this. God. Oh, well, that's really hard. What, one of my songs? or One of your songs. It has to be one of your songs. It has to be. Uh, Okay, well, I'm going to go with, because I think it's, I'm going to go with Do Right By Her from uh, Of The Moment. Fantastic. Sam Brown, thank you so much for being on the Armin podcast. And That's you've been really been... lovely. I didn't know what I, I, I love I love this. It's had amazing. Time. Had a great time. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Thank you very much, Sam. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. together but I'll do right by her though she despises me I've been called up in a love affair oh yeah don't look for me Cause I won't be there You ain't gonna do right by her You ain't gonna do right by me In the midst of it And you 